Beloved congregation, in Psalm 100, we read this wonderful statement that God's truth will be to every generation. A congregation, that word is fulfilled until this very day. Not because we have been so faithful or previous generations have been so faithful in transmitting that truth to the next generation. Because God Himself has seen to it until this very day that His truth, as expressed in His Word, but above all, His truth, unveiled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that truth shall be to every generation. And the sacrament of baptism, in a wonderful and powerful way, affirms that blessed truth. And so baptism is a sacrament. A few weeks ago, we had the privilege of administering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But we need to realize, congregation, that the sacrament of baptism is as precious and is as valuable for the congregation as is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Granted, each sacrament has its own unique focus. But ultimately, what the sacraments have in common is that they all point to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in both sacraments, it is God who communicates to us, who communicates to us by way of the signs of the sacrament. In both sacraments, God seals to us the promises of His Word, the promises that are yea and amen in Christ, the promises of the covenant of grace. And therefore, as we anticipate the administration of baptism, we will first hear what God has to say in His Word. And then we will follow with the sacrament as the visible affirmation of what God communicates to us in His Word. And so our text this morning will be from the passage we read from Acts 2 and verse 39, and we will focus especially on the first part of Acts 39, where we read these precious words, for the promise is unto you and to your children. And so here we have God's covenant promise here articulated by Peter on the day of Pentecost as he speaks to a multitude before him that had been pricked in their hearts. A covenant promise made to them. First of all, we will consider the context of this covenant promise. And the context, of course, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit followed by Peter's remarkable sermon. Secondly, we will consider the wonder of that covenant promise. When we consider to whom that promise is made, the promise is unto you and to your children. And thirdly, the generational dimension of this covenant promise. And that's a mouthful. And so, boys and girls, what does that mean? What do I mean by that? Well, look at the text. It doesn't just say the promise is to you but it says the promise is to you and to your children. 
Remember, we read, we read Genesis 17. I read it for an important reason. What did God say to Abraham? We'll get back to that in a moment. I will be unto you a God and to your seed. The promise is unto you and to your children. And so thereby God promising that what he is today, he will be in the generations that follow as long as the world stands. So God's covenant promise, the context of this promise, the wonder of this promise, and the generational dimension of this promise. What an extraordinary day it was, the day of Pentecost, the 50th day following the Passover, a day in which the Jews would celebrate the beginning of the harvest, the feast of the harvest, but also a day on which they would commemorate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And what extraordinary events took place, the, the crowning peace in the whole sequence of the events of redemption, the crowning peace upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we read it, that it was He, the exalted Christ, it was He who shed forth that Spirit. That's why He said to His disciples, it is expedient for me that I go away, because if I do not go away, if I do not return to my Father, the Spirit cannot come. Now that he had returned to his father as a reward upon his finished work, now the Spirit is shed abroad, shed forth. And what an extraordinary impact it had. First of all, upon the apostles. Amazingly, they were enabled to speak the truth of God, the glorious gospel in all the known languages of that world. Thereby God, as it were, reversing the curse of the Tower of Babylon when the languages were confused. Again, all men were able to hear the gospel proclaimed by these men. And then Peter, of course, preached that remarkable sermon, a sermon that was full of Christ from beginning to end. Remarkable, is it not? that even though Pentecost marks the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when Peter is filled with that Spirit, he cannot but speak of Christ. Because Christ had said, when that Spirit comes, He will glorify me. When that Spirit comes, He will testify of me. That's what Peter does. And then he brings it to that dramatic conclusion. And he said, you... You have crucified that Messiah. You have crucified that Christ whom God has now exalted at his right hand. That Christ who has now shed forth his spirit. And then we read these simple words. That they were pricked in their hearts. You know what that means? It literally means that their, their hearts were cut open by the Holy Spirit. Or to put it simply, you know what the Holy Spirit did here? He circumcised the hearts of those Jews. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about that promise. That not only would they be circumcised in their flesh, but that God would circumcise their hearts. That's exactly what happened here. Their hearts were circumcised. Their hearts were opened to hear the Word of God. And to emphasize 
What a miracle that was. Only a few chapters later, when Stephen stands in front of the priests, and when he brings them the same message ultimately, and he, he, and he utters the same indictment against them, what happens? They gnashed with their teeth. They gnashed with their teeth, and they picked up stones, and they stoned that man to death. The same message, but dramatically different results. So what's the difference? The difference is that here, the Spirit of God cut open their hearts, pricked their hearts, made their hearts receptive to hear what Peter was saying. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how distraught they must have been when suddenly their eyes were opened, when suddenly they realized what they had done, when suddenly, as a result of that mighty work of the Spirit, they saw their sin, their wretchedness, the ultimate act of human depravity, namely to crucify the Messiah. Oh, they trembled. They were filled with fear. And trembling, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Oh, they realized that they had provoked God to wrath. They realized that because of what they had done, having crucified the Messiah, that they were worthy of God's judgment and wrath. They trembled. What shall we do? Then it's so beautiful how Peter immediately, without hesitation, responds. How he obeys the commission that Christ had given to him and all the apostles just before he ascended, when he commissioned them to go forth and to preach repentance and remission of sins in his name. And he did that immediately. And how amazing that must have been to these people to hear that. They expected to hear the opposite. They expected to hear that Peter would thunder with wrath, that he would pronounce God's judgment upon them, and instead he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. Now, ultimately, by calling them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he simply was calling these circumcised Jews whose hearts had now been circumcised, to acknowledge that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. And so basically here, Peter, in, an, in a unique way, is proclaiming what his master told him to proclaim to sinners who cry out, what must we do? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Of course, what that doesn't mean that baptism secures the pardon of sins. Now, what that simply means, we have to read that correctly. Peter is saying, if you repent, and if you trust in Jesus Christ, the Christ whom I have preached to you, when you repent and when you trust in him, you will thereby obtain the remission of sins, which is, as you know, the foundational promise of the gospel. That is the glorious message of the gospel. When we repent, when, and what does that mean? I need, to mo I need to move on, but let me just quickly say, what does that mean? What does it mean to repent? 
Does that mean that you do your best to be a better person? No. Repent means what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1. He said, when he, when he writes to them, he said, how you turned unto God from your idols in that order. That's repentance. Repentance means that we begin to think differently about God in the first place. That means that God becomes real. And when God becomes real, you see, only then will we be motivated to turn from our sins. Not the other way around. How you turned unto God from your idols. And here in the context, we could say, is that Peter is saying, change your mind about Jesus Christ. Think about him as I have preached him to you. Think about him as the divinely appointed Messiah who suffered and died and who is now exalted at the Father's right hand. And if you turn to him, because repentance always includes that, you see, repentance means that we take God seriously, we take his word seriously. And as a result of that, we will grieve over sin, we will depart from our sins, and we will turn to His divinely appointed remedy, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the foundational promise of the gospel is that we will thereby obtain the remission of our sins. That the Spirit of God who convicts us of sin, who circumcises our hearts, who cuts our hearts open to make them receptive to the Word of God, that Spirit will then abide in us and dwell in us. And then he adds this, to underscore what he has just said. For, in other words, for the promise is unto you. And to your children. Oh, congregation, those needy people, they needed to hear that this was for them. And so Peter, as it were, wants to make sure that they don't, under, that they don't misunderstand what he is saying. And this is if Peter is saying, I am not just speaking to you in generalities. No, I want you to know that what I have just said is intended for you. The promise is unto you and to your children. And so, in other words, Peter wanted to make sure that those stricken souls, that they understood that the gospel was intended for them. Congregation, that's precisely my calling. The calling of God's servants is to make, to make sure that you understand that when the gospel is preached, God is addressing it to you personally. When you sit under the gospel, it is as if you are the only one in church. When you sit under the gospel, it is God who is speaking directly to you, who is saying to you, sinner, the promise of the gospel, that if you turn to me and believe in my son, that promise that I will forgive all of your sins, that promise is made to you, to you personally. Be it known unto you, men and brethren, Paul later says in Acts 13, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. But... He then adds the promise, and of course that promise in the context also refers to the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit, but that all belongs together. It's not only unto you, but that promise is also to your children. And so something remarkable happens here. 
We need to realize, congregation, that the day of Pentecost is the very first time that New Testament baptism is administered. We need to understand that John's baptism is not New Testament baptism. Christ's baptism was not New Testament baptism. How could there be a New Testament sacrament when Christ had not even shed his blood? John's baptism was an Old Testament priestly ritual. Christ's baptism was his inauguration to be Jehovah's priest. But I hope to address that at some future point in far more detail. And so it, it is not until Christ is ready to ascend in Matthew 28 when he institutes the sacrament of New Testament baptism, telling them to go into all the world to preach the gospel and to baptize sinners in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And so this is the first administration of baptism. And now notice, what does Peter do? Moved by the Holy Spirit, he reaches all the way back to Genesis 17. And what is Genesis 17? In Genesis 17, we read how God institutes the sacrament of circumcision. And so when circumcision is administered for the first time, God attaches a promise to that sacrament. And he says to Abraham, this sacrament will be your affirmation and the affirmation for coming generations that I will be unto you a God and to your seed. Or to put it simply, what God was saying unto Abraham was Peter was saying what Peter was saying here. He said to Abraham, My promise will be to you, Abraham, and it will be to your children. Or if we use the language of seven, Genesis 17 and we use it here, we could say, The promise is unto thee and to thy seed. And so the identical promise that God attaches to the sacrament of circumcision when it is administered for the first time, Peter uses that exact same promise, that identical promise, when baptism is administered for the very first time in the New Testament. That's very significant, congregation. Because I personally believe that this is the strongest and most powerful link in all of Scripture between circumcision and baptism. And what Peter is simply saying, that though Christ has now come and shed his blood, but God has not changed. His fundamental promises have not changed. What God promised to your father Abraham, because remember, he's speaking to Jewish people. And when Peter used this language, they understood exactly what he meant. They understood exactly that he was repeating the original covenant promise that God made to Abraham. And Peter is saying, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God today. And what he promised to your fathers, he is promising to you today. And he is promising to you today that in spite of your wickedness, in spite of the fact that you have rejected the Messiah, in spite of what you have done, that his promise remains intact. That promise 
And he will be a God unto you and to your seed. The promise of salvation. The promise of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The promise that, enco- that encompasses all that Christ has accomplished. That promise is not just for you, but it's also a promise that is for your children. And that's why, congregation, we need to understand that ultimately... Circumcision and baptism symbolize the identical truth. Circumcision was symbolic of heart circumcision, the work of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. As we go through the book of Acts, whenever baptism is mentioned, it's always mentioned in connection with the Holy Spirit. And so that's why in the New Testament... John spoke of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that means exactly the same as being circumcised in the heart. And isn't that remarkable how that all comes together, how the Spirit circumcises their hearts, and Peter then declares to them, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the promise, the promise made to your fathers, my covenant promise, the covenant The covenant formula, if you will, that is unchanged. Congregation, we don't have to apologize to anyone for the fact that we baptize our children. Because when Peter says the promise is made unto you and to your children, that means that the sacrament, because he said for, For the promise. Why do I exhort you to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Why? Because the promise, the covenant promise, is to you and to your children. Now, if the promise is to us and to our children, that means the sacrament is for us and for our children. And sadly, Baptists would have us believe that God dramatically changed course. That in the Old Testament, the inclusion of children was so important that he would have killed Moses for not having circumcised his son. And that suddenly in the New Testament, God changes his mind as if it is no longer significant. Congregation, what a misunderstanding of the continuity between Old and New Testament. The New Testament does not replace the Old Testament. It's the capstone of the Old Testament. And this whole foundational truth, this foundational promise that God made to Abraham, that promise was not canceled. What did change is that bloody sacraments became unbloody sacraments because of the finished work of Christ. But the foundational truth of the covenant remains unchanged. And so if Baptist ever asks you, What text do you have in support for baptizing children? The answer is very simple. You can say the entire Old Testament demands the inclusion of children. The entire Old Testament is the foundation of New Testament Scripture. The entire Old Testament over and over reaffirms this foundational truth that we find, for instance, in Jeremiah 31 verse 1. Where the Lord says, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. 
And this is the God whose word we proclaim to you today. And so the, the beautiful truth about not only circumcision but baptism is that God, by way of that visible sign, communicates to his people that in every generation I will do what this sacrament symbolizes. In every generation I will circumcise the hearts of my people. In every generation I will baptize them with my Holy Spirit. In every generation I will do what only I can accomplish. A congregation. That is our comfort. That is our comfort today. That God again will declare to these parents and to us, I swear by my name that as surely as I am that I am, so sure it is that also in this generation I will baptize sinners with my spirit. I will circumcise their hearts as he did here so dramatically on this day. But now the wonder of all this, congregation, the wonder of all this, because we already, I focused on that. The people to whom this promise was made, not only had they crucified their Messiah, not only had they screamed on top of their lungs, crucify him, away with him, give us Barabbas instead of Jesus. But worse than that, they had said, listen carefully, his blood be on us and our children. His blood be on us and our children. You know what they did? At that moment of wickedness, they were invoking God's covenant curse. They said, let God's covenant curse rest upon us. Let his blood be upon us and our children. What an act of wickedness that was. A congregation... There's nothing worse than to have God's covenant curse rest upon us. And ultimately, that curse rests upon sinners. What is God's covenant curse? God's covenant curse means ultimately everlasting separation from God. The biblical idea of covenant is that God it is God's desire, communicated in baptism, to bring sinners into an everlasting covenant relationship with himself. But the covenant curse is the opposite. The covenant curse is that if we live and die in our sins, we shall forever be separated from God. And so wickedly they said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And to these people who had said this, most of them were present when Christ was crucified. To these people who had so boldly and so arrogantly invoked that covenant curse. Peter now, and Christ says, but he said, the promise, the promise is to you and to your children. If ever we see an illustration of what grace means, I briefly mentioned it last week. What is grace again? Grace is not only that God gives us something we don't deserve. They didn't deserve this. 
Grace not only means that we have forfeited all of God's blessings because of sin. All of that is true. No, more importantly, congregation, grace means that God gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve. What these people deserved was God's wrath. What they deserved was God's covenant curse. What they deserved ultimately is that the earth would have opened at that moment and swallowed them up like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And now in God's name, in Christ's name, Peter tells them the opposite. He tells these people the promise, the promise of the gospel, the promise of Christ is to you. You have done this. It is to you and to your children. All, all because on the cross of Calvary, Christ received the opposite of what he deserved. He was holy, harmless, undefiled. He was the sinless Lamb of God. He was the one who perfectly obeyed his Father's law. Even Pilate had to declare over and over again that he found no fault in this man. And yet, he is nailed to the accursed cross. He endured God's covenant curse on the cross of Calvary. He experienced the radical separation between God and him in those awful hours of darkness. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that God can bestow on us and our children the very opposite of what we deserve. And that's what, the, that's what the sacrament of holy baptism testifies us. Here we have the visible affirmation of the grace of God. Here God will declare again today, for my name's sake, for my son's sake, I will do the opposite of what these children deserve. They're sons and daughters of Adam, born and conceived in sin. And we deserve God's judgment. We deserve his wrath. We deserve condemnation. But God says, for my namesake, for my son's sake, for the, because of what he has accomplished, I hereby declare that I am willing to bestow on this generation the exact opposite of what they deserve. That's grace. That's grace, congregation. Boys and girls, if you're taking notes, and I will repeat this many times, but I want you to write this down. Grace, as an, as an acronym. So, G-R-A-C-E. Put the letters in order this way, vertically. G-R-A-C-E. What does that mean? Listen carefully. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. That's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense symbolized by the sacrament of baptism. The congregation. And so in, in, a, in, a, in a gospel way, in a gospel way, God is saying, that blood which my son shed, that blood will be upon you and your children, not to your damnation, but to your salvation. That blood will be to you 
and to your children. That's what these children need. That's what you children, your children need. That's what we need. We need that precious blood of the Savior to cover our sins and our iniquities. We need that blood to wash our sins away. We need that blood to be reconciled with God. That blood needs to be upon us and to be our children. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, you see. To so work in our hearts, to cut open our hearts, to circumcise our hearts, that we realize our need of that blood, that we realize our need of that precious Savior. So in Isaiah 44, verse 3, the outpouring of the Spirit is promised in, in beautiful covenant language. Listen carefully. The Lord says, I will pour my Spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. He's reminding us of that promise. He's reminding us visibly, I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. That's what he confirms in the sacrament of baptism. That's why congregation, that's why you can tell your children this. You can tell them this today, especially today. And parents, as you raise your precious children that God has given to you, you may raise them and tell them, when you were an infant, God already communicated the gospel to you. God already communicated the promise of the gospel to you. Because what will happen is that God's name and the name of that sinful child will be mentioned in the same breath. You know, when you sign a contract, what makes a contract binding? When both parties put their name on that piece of paper, then you have a covenant, you have a binding contract. This is about that amazing covenant of grace. This is that sacrament that affirms that God in every generation will bring sinners into an everlasting covenant relationship with himself. And he puts his name next to the name of your child. What an amazing thing. That means, congregation, as you raise your children, if your children would ever doubt, if they would ever say to you, but mom or dad, how do I know that I can be saved? You can say, when you were baptized, God called you by your name. When you were baptized, God declared, I am willing to be the God of that child, specifically of that child. Then finally, the generational dimension. Of course, I've already woven that throughout my message. But you know, the whole history of Israel is a confirmation that God kept his word in spite of all that happened, in spite of all their idolatry, in spite of their exile in Babylon, God kept his word. That's why the New Testament begins the way it does. That's why the New Testament begins with 42 generations before the birth of Christ is mentioned. Because there, Matthew literally links the Old and New Testament together. He actually reviews the whole Old Testament in light of that promise. 
Ultimately, he's saying the whole Old Testament culminates in this, that God has remembered his covenant from generation to generation to generation until the seed of Abraham was born, namely the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, the New Testament begins with a covenantal review of the Old Testament, a covenantal reminder to the people of Israel what God said so many times, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then you can go on. The God of my people. Oh, dear, or dear child of God, your God also. God knows you by name. And how could God be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They were sinful men. He could be their God because there is, an, there is a name between those names. He is the God of Jacob. Why? Because of Christ. Christ is between God and Jacob. Christ is the link that unites God and Jacob. Christ is the link that unites God and his children. For Christ's sake, he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For Christ's sake, he is the God of his people in every generation. That's why the church of Jesus Christ exists today. That's why we are here. Dear believer, we are the living affirmation of that covenant promise. God has remembered us in our generation. And God has directed previous generations to communicate to us this promise of the gospel to communicate the glorious gospel of Christ to us. And now it is our calling to communicate that same gospel to the next generation and to do so until he returns. And baptism is the visible warranty that that promise cannot and will not fail. Turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah 59, a wonderful passage in, in verse 21. Isaiah 59, verse 21. And, and, and let's read this beautiful promise in light of the sacrament today. Because this, this is one of those promises that God is signifying and sealing today by means of this sacrament. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, my spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. What an amazing thing it is when as parents we live to hear God's word coming out of the mouth of our children. God says, I will do it. I will do it for my namesake because it is my covenant. I will keep it. I, my truth will be to all generations. Therefore, we must do what Psalm 78, verse 4, exhorts us to do. It says, we will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. That's our task. 
That's our responsibility, you see. Sometimes we talk about God's sovereignty and responsibility. But this is, this is God's sovereign good pleasure. Sovereign good pleasure on display by means of this sacrament. And the fact that we are here is because of God's sovereignty. The fact that the gospel has come to us is because of God's sovereign good pleasure. The fact that also in this congregation there are those who have embraced Christ by faith is because of God's sovereign good pleasure. But you see, that sovereignty defines our responsibility. When God sovereignly blesses us, we have a sacred responsibility to act accordingly. And that means that we have to not hide from our children, but we have to teach them the praises of the Lord, the strength, and His wonderful works that He has done. That's why earlier in his sermon, Peter quoted the prophet Joel. Prophet Joel, who prophesied, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. That was happening on that day. And prophesy here does not mean foretell the future. Prophesy in Scripture means to speak God's word. That's what a prophet does. He speaks the words of God. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And that's what God promises today. That's what he reminds us of today. For my name's sake, for my covenant's sake, I will continue to build my church. And I will see to it that your sons and daughters will also prophesy. So, dear boys and girls, dear children, this is a reminder of what happened when you were a baby. This is God's reminder to you. I am willing to be your God. Oh, he is reminding you of that beautiful promise that Paul quotes in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, with which I want to conclude. These beautiful words, I will receive you. This is, boys and girls, do not ever let the devil tell you that you may not go to God. God is saying again today, here, he said, look at this. Look at this sacrament. I will receive you. I called you by my name. I will receive you. And then what does he say? And will be a father unto you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. For the promise is unto you and to your children. Amen.